Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in to another week of Women to Watch here on Talk 860. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm thrilled to be joined this morning by Martha Raditz. Uh, Martha Raditz is Senior Foreign Affairs Correspondent at ABC News and is joining us by phone from Washington, D.C. Good morning, Martha. Good morning, Susan. How is it in, in Washington this morning? We had kind of a heavy fog here driving in. Well, when I came to work at about 5.30 a.m., there was some uh, heavy fog, but it's absolutely beautiful right now yeah. at about 60 degrees. I, yeah, I think it's going to be a beautiful day. Maybe the last one for a while. Yes, exactly, exactly. I'm gearing up. Um, so, Martha, I just wanted to point out to the uh, listeners that you and I met at a wonderful event a couple weeks ago here in Philadelphia, and it was the um, awarding of the Liberty Medal for Malala. How did you, you know, how did you think that event was? Oh, I thought that event was incredible. And it was one of those things that I did, that surprised me in a way that I, I had no idea how moved I would be. You know, you show up and I was the MC, And we, of course, this young woman is remarkable, but I had never been around her. Yeah. And I think all of us were just really blown away by her, by her poise, by her, by her soul. I, I just was, she's just remarkable. She really is. I, I, I could sense that actually from, uh, you know, I was sitting in the audience, but I could feel um, everyone on the stage there, you know, just how they looked at her. And when she spoke, she really is remarkable for at such a young age. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Really for any age. For it's any age. Made, yeah. Made even more remarkable by the fact she's so young. Right. And incredibly brave. Yes. Um, so I, I wanted to start out, as I always do on my show, I, I like to uh, find out a little bit about my guest's background and, and just get an idea of um, where you grew up and, and what your life was like, your aspirations as a young girl to see um, what your path was and what shaped you. So talk for a few minutes about your years growing up in Idaho. Well, actually, I really didn't grow. I, I was born there, and um, and unfortunately, my dad died at a very uh, early age, and I was not yet three years old. So my mother returned to where she had grown up, which was uh, Salt Lake City, Utah. So I was actually raised there. Okay. Uh, but left uh, in my twenties and moved to Boston, and I was honestly one of those. Kids, I you know I look back now and I and I see that I was in the broadcasting club or something, but I I had no idea what I wanted to do. In fact, I am uh, sorry to say that I was a college dropout, but it was my senior year, and I think I was just eager to do something different, to go somewhere different, to see the world. I, I'd say that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. But so I sort of fell into being a reporter, mm -hmm. and. Um, and uh, it, it worked out pretty well, but I loved it right away, too, because it's it's kind of a disciplined curiosity and you learn something every day. And yeah. that to me was was the right path. Yeah, that, that's so interesting to me. So I would say, you, you know, had kind of an, an adventurous side. Clearly, if you if you took a risk like that, that's a brave thing to do. And it's it's a risk. At a young age, you were taking a risk already. Yes, it's probably true. So. <laughs> So tell me about what was your first job then? Where was that? 
Uh, my first job in television? Yes. My first job in television was in Salt Lake, and I think I was filing tapes or something. Um, and then I, I honestly, and it's it's kind of insane, but I really did just become a reporter a few years later. And I think part of it was because I was just, I loved it. And I was so curious all the time and wanted to find out everything I could about any story. I think from from very early on, I didn't care what the story was. It fascinated me, and I wanted to know more. I didn't care if it was, you know, the flower show down the street. I wanted to know what kind of flowers and why they got, why they were there and how they got there and who was selling them. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I think that, you know, you just sort of, I was in that sense a natural for, for what I do. Yeah. Tell me, what were there any other activities you were involved in as a young girl? Did you play sports or? No. 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 I'm, I'm a child of the 50s, a female child of the 50s. We weren't really encouraged to play sports. I, yeah. I, I actually, I think that's terrible. When I, when I look at my own daughter and how, and how big a role sports played in her life and in, yes. co- in confidence building, you know, we were in the blue gym suits and, um, doing jumping jacks on a good day. Yeah. So, it, it's, uh, right. so unfortunately, I've been, I've, you know, I've stayed, I'm, I'm healthy and I, you know, work out and, and all that. So yeah. I, I know that it's really important, but in, in those years, girls were really encouraged in a big way to yeah. be and active y- in sports. And, you know, I agree with you. I have a daughter as well. And I, I think um, athletics for young girls is a great, uh, a great way to help build their self-esteem and confidence. Yep, it, it really is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Martha, you've received numerous awards over the years, and uh, I'm wondering what, what you think makes for a great journalist. Other than that, other than the curiosity, I think that's key. Always I, I, wanting... think, I think what makes for a good journalist is, is realizing that your responsibility is so great that every day you, you have, you can change people's lives in a good way or if you're irresponsible in an unfair way. And I think that is a constant stressor in my life. I want to be correct. I want to be right. I don't, as a journalist, I tell young journalists this too, you know, if you're entering this to find the truth, there is not always such a clear-cut truth in everything you're going after. And I I think that's something I discovered. I mean, I really learned journalism along the way, too. And I pride myself on on having high standards uh, and being objective and seeing. It's very important to me to go the places I cover, not just sit here and and talk about them. Mm -hmm. But I I would say being responsible, being curious, I I honestly think you have to have a soul. I, I I mean particularly for what I do and and the kind of journalism that I'm most proud of over the years mm-hmm. and people I've covered. I, I think I think young journalists make a mistake thinking that you have to be so distant from something that you that you lose what the true heart of that story is and that that is something I think about a lot. Mm. You know, it, that makes me um, think about a question I was going to ask you later on. But I I wonder when you're reporting from really tough places, um, and you certainly go to some you know areas that many of us, most of us, will never be. Um, 
how do you refrain from personal commentary? In other words, you're um, just seeing horrific things, and you do. You have to stick to the facts. Um, you know, that's what you're there to do. And I would imagine you, you know, in your mind, you have some something very personal to say that you believe. How do you, you know, hold back from that? Well, I think, I mean, certainly in a in a policy situation, I'm I'm not going to give my personal opinion. Right. Um, I I you know I am not objective about sacrifice and service, and I think we should all be grateful to those who volunteer to serve this country. Which doesn't mean if if someone messes up terribly that I'm not going to cover it and say they messed up terribly. But I think, you know, I do. I remember I'm an American. I am. And I'll tell you an example of just a story where, I mean, it's affected me because it happened last night. And that is a 34-year-old soldier named Thomas Young. Uh, died the night before, and I happened to have been home watching the concert for Valor on the National Mall. I was supposed to go, but ended up working. So they aired that, and I was watching that Veterans Day beautiful, beautiful concert to raise money for the wounded and got word that Thomas had died. I have uh, been in touch with Thomas for more than 10 years. He was in a battle that I wrote about and covered um, for Nightline stories about the soldiers involved in a battle in April of 2004 in Iraq and wrote a book about that battle. Thomas was paralyzed in that battle, and the uh, soldier who saved him is uh, a man named uh, Robert Miltenberger. I, I actually consider myself quite close to Miltenberger. Thomas became an anti-war protester from his wheelchair. He was He was... Uh, a paraplegic. And last year, we found out that Thomas had had an embolism and had become a quadriplegic and was in really terrible shape. And one of the people he wanted to see, who he had not seen since the day he saved him, is Robert Miltenberger. So we flew out to Oregon where Thomas was. We had um, Robert and his wife, Brenda, visit Thomas Young for the first time since they had been in a bloody battle and Milton Berger was with him in the back of the truck, knew he was paralyzed. When Thomas said to him, am I paralyzed in that truck? And he was, of course, in shock. Milton Berger said to him, no, you're okay. Uh, Milton Berger has lived with that. He feels terribly guilty about that Mm. and had Mm. had that burden his this whole decade. He, He was awarded a silver star for his heroism that day. So we had those two families together last year, and Thomas was in terrible shape, just terrible, terrible shape. And I care about him. I care about Milton Berger. I care about a lot of the people I cover and and stay in touch with them. I, I called Thomas's widow last night, and I called the Milton Burgers as well to let them know because I didn't want them to read about it. So that's a very long story, but I think you know what I'm saying. Yes, I do. I do. And I wonder, <clears throat> again, so so that is just one small example of many, many, many uh, relationships that you've made over the years um, and many stories you've told and things you've seen. And I wonder how you uh, remain hopeful when that is your job? 
when seeing all that, I, I always remain hopeful because on you know I can um, have a have a terribly sad story about Thomas or or the Milton Burgers, but then I see the Milton Burgers and they give me hope because they carry on and he has carried a very painful burden. Or I, you know, I'm at a, an event for Stand Up for Heroes last week with my colleague Bob Woodruff, who was so badly injured in 2006, mm. who's foundations now raised $22 million, and I see these young veterans who come every year and and are living lives that are productive, that their families continue to care for them, uh, and that gives me hope. You know, I mean, there are there are very few times in my career where I have, have not had hope. And the, I mean, my job isn't my job is to tell stories mm-hmm. and to cover news. And I, I think the first just incredibly sad thing I ever saw as a journalist was in 1984 during the famine in Ethiopia. I'd, I'd never seen anything like that. And and to see people dying of starvation right next to me and mothers trying to give me their babies. I remember going up on a hillside that night and starting to cry. And then I stopped myself and and. And as powerful as those emotions were, I felt like I didn't have a right to cry. Um, they were suffering. I was not suffering. And that that was sort of one of those nights of clarity where I have a heart and I feel terrible for these things. But my job and my passion is to tell these stories and make other people care. Mm. Well, you know, Martha, I would say, you know, a characteristic you have and, and that any good journalist is going to have to have is that strength, that ability to, um, you know, feel, be compassionate, but yet not let it, you know, kind of take over, that you're going to continue to, you know, to tell the story. Yep, yep. I mean, that's that's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. Um, is there is there any one um, event in particular that kind of stands out, you know, in the forefront of your mind that you that you really took something away from, um, similar to the story you just told about Robert Milton Berger? Is there another event that really, you know, you just never forget? Uh, there are a whole lot of them from from Iraq and Afghanistan, and and uh, I mean, I. I suppose I, I mean, I hate to keep bringing up these really hard stories, but I, I will never forget being in a combat, basically a combat ER, and and just on a clear, bright, beautiful day in Baghdad, having a young soldier come in whose whose legs had just been blown off, but I. But I, what I loved about that day, and it's hard to say there's anything you love about that day, is how he reacted and how how strong he was and funny and and he's another one who I've kept in touch with a young man named Mark Little and and to see him that day was was pretty powerful and he has since gone on he's walking and got married and is is a very very strong person mm. so I, I i mean the stories you remember are about humanity and about human beings and about courage and that's what you remember i i i don't really remember any dramatic moments from covering a policy story on the hill <laughs> right you know, right uh, it, it, it's it's always people it's always people and moments you remember and and 
and frankly, it's probably like people's childhood. The thing they remember are probably right. things that aren't aren't things you want to remember. But it's I try to take good things away from from that and. The courage I've seen is is remarkable. It is it is remarkable. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are moments where I was afraid that I remember, but fleetingly. Uh, but mostly, it's it's people I've met, and there are so many that I stay in touch with. Mm. So yeah, I can't imagine. You know, you're just probably uh, inspired on a regular basis by humanity, and that is I really am. what allows you to, you know, want to get to the next story. Yeah, it, it's uh, true. Yeah. Has um, when you were younger and just kind of starting out, was there a, a mentor for you, somebody that you looked to that you thought is doing it well and I want to emulate? You know, I it, it's one of the reasons I think I'm I, I feel very strongly about mentoring young people, very strongly about that and go out of my way to do that now is I don't think I had great mentors when I was young. I don't I, I mean, I'm a 61-year-old woman, and back then there weren't really. I, I remember seeing women on TV who I thought were were great, but but it was also at a time I didn't. Again, I wasn't one of those young people who was like, I want to be on TV. I want to be that person. I just didn't think like that. Mm-hmm. I just worked. I liked what I was doing, and I worked. Um, but. Uh, you know, certainly people who, I mean, Peter Jennings was an amazing journalist and, and Charlie Gibson, an amazing journalist. And, you know, Diane Sawyer has been really an inspiration and a wonderful mentor at ABC. But when I was younger, um, I, I would not say I had any single person. I had a couple of um, speech teachers in speech and debate and things like that in in middle school. Right. <laughs> I thought they were great and in yeah. high school teachers who encouraged me. But um in in television I think in in many ways where I was there weren't a whole lot of people when I was younger who were ahead of me. Yeah. Well, and today too, there's so so much talk um, about mentors, and there's mentorship programs, you know, everywhere, mm-hmm. and people are really taking note of the importance of that and setting things up for the young people today. And right. and we did not have that. No, no, we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, t- you know, I'd love for you to talk uh, for a few minutes about your children. I know you have a, a son and a daughter, and I'm sure they're an inspiration to you as and well. Granddaughter. Oh, and a granddaughter. Yeah. Oh, that's even better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you know, and I wonder, too, how, you know, how you made it work when they were small. Um, I, I'm not going to ask you the question of balance because I don't think that I don't think that there is balance. You know, we talk about how do you, you know, keep your life balanced. I think that um, some days things you always fail in one <clears throat> in one or the other. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's just unrealistic. I, I think I, I think what you and, and some of the young women here and some of the young women I know who say, oh, it must have been so hard then because, you know, there weren't that many women. But I mean, you know, I should say right now, Barbara Walters, Barbara Walters is amazing. I forgot to mention Barbara Walters. If if, if anyone doesn't look at her life as an inspiration and what she went through. Right. Um, But but I think when my daughter was really young, I probably could not have done what I'm doing right now. And what I or cover the wars the way I have, mm-hmm. um, and I mean people have done it, and I admire them, and and that's what they want to do. Um, the 
But when she was young, I traveled internationally quite a bit, but it's like anybody tries to do. It's like if someone said, oh, should we stop in Jordan and, you know, go see, go check this out, go check out Petra? No, I got to get back. So I'd make very short trips as, okay. as yeah. short as possible and turn around and come back. But the young women now are, are doing what I'm doing, which is pretty much working 24-7. Right. I mean, you are always on your uh, email. You are always answering questions 24-7, and particularly in this business. So it's it's really, really, really tough. I mean, my daughter is a lawyer, a litigator for a big firm, and, you know, she's amazing. I just think she's amazing. And she's got, you know, a 17-month-old baby girl. She's also got an amazing husband. Mm-hmm. And I think they share really, really well and both take responsibility. But it's it's um, it's tough. It's It's tough. And it will always be tough, whether you are male, female, to be a parent and and have an incredibly demanding job. My when when the war started in in Afghanistan in 2001, I mean, my my life and my career life really changed. And I was covering national security. And the day before that, you know, nobody was paying much attention to it. And the day after, it's all anyone was paying attention to. That's right. I felt, even though I had a young son who was 10 years old, that what I was doing meant something in a in a larger way that it was really important this was not a selfish gee i want to be a war correspondent it mm. it was something that that i think the nation needed mm-hmm. that we needed to tell those stories and my kids you know, my daughter obviously was older but understand that they understand that uh you have a passion about something i want and am raising my children and always have to be independent and find their passion or find something they love. And, and whatever that is, is what I want them to do. Uh, my son is still in college. My son's a senior in college. He plays college football. I am very proud that I have managed to, out of 10 games, only miss two of them. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah, it, it's, it's actually, it's insane is what it is. <laughs> it's, it's insane to, you know, fly to uh, Columbus, Ohio, and turn around and fly back right after the game and right. time to host this week on Sunday. Right. It's kind of insane, but it, it's his last year. I'm not going to miss it. No. And I, I think that's what we do all the time. It's, you, you have, I, I've certainly missed events in my children's lives over the years, many of them, mm-hmm. but you make it up where you can and, and, um, and do what you can. I mean, it adds stress. You know that. I know it that does. every, every yeah. woman or, or, um, father, uh, who, who is involved in his children's life understands how hard it is and what those stressors are. Yeah. But you know, we're so lucky if you're doing, if you really are doing what you love, through all of that kind of madness and multitasking, um, it makes it worthwhile. And what's more fun than watching your son play football? Nothing. 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 There's no place I'd rather be. <laughs> it's the best. Um, Martha, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I'd love to talk about uh, what inspired you to write The Long Road Home. We'll be right back, everyone, with Martha Raddatz, Senior Foreign Affairs Correspondent at ABC News. Are you the parent of a daughter in middle school? If so, I must tell you about an upcoming event at Mount St. Joseph Academy. As the parent of an alum, I know firsthand the value of their academic excellence, athletic and arts programs. 
This private, all-girls Catholic high school in Montgomery County provides the foundation our daughters need to go on to leadership roles at top universities and future careers. I know my daughter did. To register for the open house, go to msjacad.org backslash open house. And be sure to ask about their financial assistance and scholarship programs when you visit msjacad.org backslash open house. Hello? Hi, Kelly. It's Sue. Are you and Joe going to the kids' game after school today? No, we are stuck in traffic again on our way to the hospital for Joe's IVIG infusion. As usual, we will be at the hospital all day and won't be home in time. This is really becoming a problem with our work and family commitments. Hey, my friend's son receives his infusions at home with Walgreens. You know they are not just a retail pharmacy. Walgreens has a national home infusion program. He used to miss school, but now the Walgreens nurses see him at home after school. Wow, infusions in the comfort of our own home? Yes, Walgreens expert infusion nurses and pharmacists are available 24-7 to provide safe, one-on-one -on -one clinical support around your schedule. Talk to your doctor and call Walgreens Infusion Services at 877-974-4844 or go to womentowatch.net for complete details. We will, if we ever get out of this traffic, hardy har har. We can't wait to have these infusions at home with Walgreens. Thanks. Be well. Have you ever wondered about the magic of Paris? Traveled there before? You haven't experienced Paris until you've traveled with us. I'm Chloe Johnson, the owner of CJ Tours. I became hooked on the mystique of all things Parisian after just one visit to the City of Light. CJ Tours, a travel, fashion, and product company, provides an experience unlike any other when it comes to exploring the hidden gems of Paris. We connect you with boutiques off the beaten path. We provide the opportunity to go behind the scenes with some of the most celebrated designers Paris has to offer. You can even purchase one-of-a-kind French pieces as mementos of your trip, or ask us to source that special piece just for you. CJ Tours and our unique products are designed to provide that Parisian je ne sais quoi and allow you to experience Paris like never before. To learn more, contact me at Chloe Johnston at cjshoppingtours.com or simply visit chloejohnston.com for more information. Are you looking for assistance with your IT demands? Would you like to know that the people you hire have your best interest at heart? InSource is one of the region's most distinguished and fastest growing technology firms in the Philadelphia area. Their only concern is to deliver your business long-term success to avoid reacting to daily crisis. Recognized as a top employer of IT consultants, they thrive on helping their clients exceed expectations. InSource delivers reliable and effective solutions to the technology needs of both small and large businesses as well as nonprofits and does so with the goals of your business in mind. With over a decade of recognized success, InSource provides its clients with both IT staffing needs as well as putting highly qualified project teams together. InSource is also a partner of ServiceNow, the fastest growing software company in the country. Contact InSource today at 610-592-0800 or visit their website at InSourceNow.com to find the quality help you need. When you are shopping, do you chuckle at the one-size-fits-all tags? Well, wealth management should not take a one-size-fits-all approach either. Companies offer different products and services for women, and they should. All women are different. Your plan should be as unique and personal as you are. So why are you still following your one-size-fits-all financial advisor? Financial advisor Liz Barker of RBC Wealth Management understands this. 
Her area of expertise is women in transition and being retirement ready. Call Liz Barker, financial advisor at RBC Wealth Management at 484-530-2806. Again, that number is 484-530-2806 or visit her online at www.lizbarker.com to schedule your complimentary custom wealth management plan today. RBC Wealth Management, a division of RBC Capital Markets, LLC, member NYSE, FINRA, SIPC. Welcome back, everyone, to this week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860. I am being joined today by Martha Raditz, and Martha Raditz is Senior Foreign Affairs Correspondent with ABC News. And I'm, I'm just thrilled to have you here today. I'm, I'm taking dubious notes as, as you speak so that I can learn some things from you. No, it's, you, you, you know it all. Come on. <laughs> Not quite, but um, I'm trying. You've lived it all, that's for sure. <laughs> I um. I wanted to talk about the book that you wrote, which is The Long Road Home, and and kind of, you know, what inspired you to do that um, in the middle of your career. And and just to um, give the listeners a sense, it's a story um, about a platoon of soldiers um, that came under surprise attack in Seder City, Iraq, in, um, I guess it was 2004. Uh The book was released in 2007. Is that right? That's right. Yep. Yeah. And uh, what was it about that particular incident um, that, that inspired you to write the book? And I know that it, I have not had a chance to read it yet, but everything that I've read about it. Um, I know about I know about interviewing authors. You can't read their you book. You can't read every book. <laughs> so, so, so don't worry about it. There's no time to do that. Right. When I was, it's the battle Thomas Young was in and, and Robert Milton Berger. And it was a time during the war. We were all wrapped up in the beginning of the war of uh, talking about policy and why the U.S. went to war when there it was discovered there weren't weapons of mass destruction as described by the administration at the time. So that was sort of the daily grind. What what was going on? The invasion was over. Things seemed to be getting a little better. And I was in Baghdad and talking to some people, and and they actually said there was just an incredible battle, just an incredible battle. And they were telling me about it, and they had lost eight soldiers. I know that now, after years and years of war, may not sound like a lot, but at the time, it was the largest single loss of life since the Vietnam War for the 1st Cavalry Division. They started telling me what had happened, that, that a platoon had been ambushed, and this was an area we did not think we had enemies. And the platoon was ambushed, and the others went in to try to rescue them. That's what Miltenberger and Thomas Young were trying to do, is rescue this stranded platoon. So I was just about to come back to Washington, and I said, I would would love to do that. Is there any way you can help me meet these soldiers? They flew me to Sadr City on a helicopter the next day and sat all the soldiers just one after another. It was like going into a dentist's office because I looked at those soldiers and I thought this is the last thing any of them want to do is do an interview. But we had not really done very much about what it was like to fight and what it was like for our American service members on the ground to be in a fight. And so I interviewed them one after another, and, and Milton Berger is the one I remember most. And we we did a nightline, and 
I sat down, and Milton Berger is kind of a cranky-looking guy, and all I said to him is, tell me what happened. And he broke down sobbing. And to see this strong soldier break down sobbing, it was it was completely eye-opening because it's, you know, we'd been so wrapped up in policy discussions and should we, shouldn't we, that we forgot that our, our soldiers were in a real war. Mm-hmm. And it was also at a time when things were really turning around that, that things were getting very, very bad over there mm-hmm. and very rapidly. Just to listen to these stories, and to, there, there was a, a pediatrician, and a, you wonder why a pediatrician is there in Iraq, in Baghdad. Mm-hmm. First of all, he had the face, just a baby face. I think he was 26 at the time, uh, a doctor named Dave Mathias. The Army has pediatricians because, of course, the Army has families, and, 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 and Dr. Mathias had been taking care of children at Fort Hood, but was sent over there, and again, they thought it was going to be a mission of no problem and you know this is uh Sadr city is a shiite area it'll be it'll be peaceful and dave mathias's first night and this in this first cavalry division 25 cav had just taken over that night and they had 60 wounded and eight deaths and you know a 26 year old pediatrician is the medic there dealing with this many many others as well but to hear him tell his story so that's why I covered it, and that was a nightline. And then a publisher approached me about doing a book, and uh, I did. And it was honestly the hardest thing I've ever done because I didn't take time off to do it. It oh, was gosh. I was covering the White House at the time, traveling to Iraq, and I would work all day. And at night, I would walk back from the White House up to the, my office at ABC and uh, – have like a half an hour of clearing my head, eating dinner, and and then putting in the putting in the book mode, and working probably till one every night, mm-hmm. and starting all over the next day. It was it was again, it was pretty crazy. I'm really proud I did it, and uh, it that book means a lot to me. Uh, those again, those guys mean a lot to me. We did uh, on April fourth of this year was the ten year anniversary of that battle. Mm-hmm. And I went out to Fort Hood, and we did a very, very powerful story on the reunion. A lot of the guys are still in. A lot of them aren't in. Some are struggling. Some are absolutely thriving. The the man who was the battalion commander at the time, meaning it was his his guys that night, was at the time a lieutenant colonel named Gary Valeski. Gary ended up having three tours in Iraq two tours in Afghanistan, and right now he's heading the efforts in Liberia, and he's a major general. So when you go so far back with with people you know like that and see what they've done over the years, Gary spent half his son's life deployed, and he has an amazing wife, Leanne Valesky, who you know, has seen him through all these deployments. Um, some of the other spouses haven't, haven't done so well and you can understand it completely mm. but but it it is that group of soldiers and uh it has it's been remarkable to cover them and you know do you, in, in in fact the the story about Thomas Young and I had not spent a lot of time with Thomas Young and but 
one of our young producers here at ABC last year is the one who noticed the story about Thomas Young in the paper, and she came up to me and said, did you see this story about this, this veteran, this paralyzed veteran who wants to stop his medications and let himself die? He ended up not doing that. He he, he did not commit suicide. Um, but But I said, let me see that. And I said, Thomas Young? I said, I, I said, he's in my book. He was in that battle. I've interviewed the, the guy who saved him over and over and over over the years. So that's how that started. So it, it, it is remarkable how many, I, I mean, when I heard that they were sending, you know, 3,000 U.S. troops to Liberia and it would be Gary Valesky is now the, the, the commander of the 101st Airborne Division. And when I heard it was Gary Valesky, it was, oh, my gosh, I can't believe how much he's done over these years. I can't believe it. Yeah, yeah, it, it really is remarkable. And I, I don't know that we ever, you know, we're reminded and we remind ourselves certainly, you know, on days like yesterday um, ab- about what a very small percentage of uh, men and women are doing in our country for us. But I don't know that we really can understand it. Um, but you get to see it firsthand. You know, you you really do. I wonder, let me ask you this, Martha. Are are you afraid, you know, when you're in these conflict zones? Are you afraid or are you just um, focusing so much on the work you're doing and preparing for your reporting and your stories? I think you, you it helps to see it through a journalistic lens. Mm. And the, the most, the times that I am afraid and and I can't have really gone and just and and been afraid, because I don't I don't think you do your best. I mean, it, it it's crazy to say you're fearless because th- that I am not, and I think I'd be stupid to be fearless because you you should be you should have a healthy fear. Mm-hmm. But I, I guess I try not to think about the what if what if what ifs. But the times I've been probably most afraid. Or if I'm distracted by something at home, if my son has had a bad week or my daughter's had, and then you're you're worried about that and you're worried if something happened to you that that would be terrible for your children. But most of the time you you try to stay focused on what you're doing. Yeah. Um, I You know, that um, that episode in 2004 was only a, a few years after 9-11. And um, I read that you received, you know, several awards for your coverage um, of that day. And I, you know, I have to ask what, you know, that particular coverage of that particular event in our country, um, what did you take away from that, that, that changed uh, the way you do your work and the reporting that you do? I, I think it changed everyone. I think it changed every journalist. I, I, I think there was some, we had to correct some stuff a little bit for a while. I think we got a little too much. We lost our journalistic lens there for for a month or so because the, the difference in that day is you are a reporter. You are covering the most important story in the world and the most tragic and terrible story that day. But you are also an American under attack who has to go home and is, you know, a scared American. I don't mean that, you know, that I'm going home shaking, but it's that you're a concerned American, I guess, is probably a better way to put it. So it's, you know, certainly the first time my homeland had been attacked in in my lifetime. And it, it, it changes you. It changes you. It does. And 
that's but it's also the day you realize that what you're doing in your job is really important beyond what it was the day before. I mean, that day um, I happened to be in the State Department, but I had just left the house with my husband and we saw we were home still and saw the second plane hit. And we both my husband's a reporter for NPR and got in the car. He he dropped me off at the State Department and then he headed to the Pentagon. And about half an hour, 40 minutes later, the Pentagon was hit. And I couldn't get a hold of him, but I am, (laughs) this just tells you something, I am not a huge warrior. And I know that's a huge building. And I knew what side the press was on. And I, but, but I also, we evacuated the State Department and I spent my day on the Memorial Bridge by the Lincoln Memorial watching the Pentagon burn and watching hundreds of men and women in uniform come over. On, if for those who don't know Washington, the Pentagon is on the other side of the river. Um, you know, traffic was completely gridlocked, but there were a lot of people in uniform who had jobs to do and they came over to this side of the river. And you know, honestly, on that on that bridge that day, I I think anybody who lived in Washington D.C. thought we were probably going to die. I mean, we were hearing all sorts of reports of other planes hitting um, before the phones went down, and I don't know why they were down. It was probably the cell phones were just so many people were calling, and occasionally you could get through. But I, call, this is this is the non warrior in me that that I called my. My daughter was off in college in Massachusetts, but called my son's school, and I love my son's school. He was, you know, 10 years old, and I knew that they would handle this well. I, I knew, I certainly knew that his tiny little school in D.C. was not a target, so I felt yes, he was safe. Yes. I felt good about that. I called to see if the after-school program was still underway. It was was going to, and, and explained what I was doing, and they were fantastic. And they said, "Yes, he's he's great. Jake will be fine. We'll take good care of him." Well. What I didn't plan for is I was the only parent who um, didn't pick up my child that day. My son still kids me about that. And he said, Mom, for a while I thought people had dentist appointments, and then it was pretty clear something was really wrong. Um, But I... Uh, You know, obviously got him that night, and but our life was was uh, pretty intense for weeks after that. I think he was. I I mean, I I think for kids, you know, certainly in New York and certainly in D.C. who were young, uh, this will stay with them in ways they don't even understand. And then the next year in D.C. we had the sniper, which Mm -hmm. absolutely was terrifying because Mm -hmm. you did not know why people were getting shot at gas stations and, and you know parking lots and, uh, and in front of schools and my son was I didn't want to go to school. I mean, just said, I'm not going to school. I'm and too scared. And how said, old I'm was more he? scared than 9/11. And I said, because because you lived through 9/11 and this. And so we're so grateful they caught those people. Yeah, yeah. Gosh, I had for, I for, you know there's so many incidents. Sadly, I had forgotten about that. Um, what do your children? So, um, 
as far as their um, outlook on life and how they go out and about and do the things, do you think that they have a sense of, um, not necessarily bravery, but um, you say you're not a worrier, and that's such a great quality. I think there's a big difference between, um, you know, kind of general anxiety and, and worry. And your kids, do you see that they worry about, you know, things in the world because we know so much, or do you think they're more like you? I think my daughter doesn't. I think my son does. I think my son play, okay, uh, keeps pretty and, – and, and I do think it's a, a difference in age that this happened to him when he was a vulnerable child. Right. And I think there's going to always be that part of him and others of that age who lived here, who lived in New York, who somewhere remember that. I, I, I think he had a much harder time with me going overseas than my daughter, and, and again, it's age. Um, the the you know my daughter was was older when the war started and understood it I, I i do think and my daughter wrote a absolutely beautiful article about this when when my colleague bob woodruff was injured that sort of changed things in my house too you know it's it's my friend bob got injured someone who does what my mom does got injured badly badly and nearly died and I remember calling my daughter that day, and um, I, I don't break down very often, but boy, I did that day, and so did she, and we were both sobbing. And, but I know she understood. I mean, my kids have both been around wounded, wounded veterans, and understand that, and understand the importance of telling those stories. And and she wrote a really wonderful article about that and and what that meant um my son at the time i i mean everybody kids cope in such strange ways i mean i remember coming home that night after 9-11 and and jake said to me um mom you know i'm i'm not flying on american or united airlines anymore that 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 was his way of coping that mm-hmm. that'll solve that i won't go on those two airlines that'll solve that yeah. and when bob was injured Bob had just been made an anchor, and my son used to kid me. He's like, oh, Mom, you'll never be an anchor. I'm like, I don't want to be an anchor. I want to be a reporter. And when I came home that night, he said, I don't want you to be an anchor, uh-huh. because in his mind, that was the way to protect me, yeah. that if I wasn't an anchor, that wouldn't have happened. And so I can go back out as a correspondent, and I'll be safe. But I, I think all that are, are tricks of little kids' minds. And mm-hmm. when they're older... They know. I mean, I remember saying on a trip, I said, you know, I'm with the military. I'm, I've am i got guys around me who are armed. He said, Mom, the military is the target. So they don't fool themselves mm. after they're little kids. So I think it's harder. And I, you know, I, I am grateful to my son for, I guess, appreciating that his mom was trying to do something important. Mm. And, you know, he also, I've heard him talk about it, too. And, you know, he's 23 years old now, and he's quite eloquent about it and and what what it means to him. And, you know, I, of course, always say to him, and I come watch you play football, which isn't the easiest thing to watch for a mother. <laughs> right, right. Weekend, by the way, with a broken thumb. So. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> Oh, well, you know, I think we have different conversations. Um, the, the conversations change as, as, as our kids, you know, go from one age to the next. And I think it's important to kind of make sure that those conversations are age appropriate. And then as they do get older, you know, you speak more frankly and, and open about what the reality is. 
Yeah, I, I, I think it's true. I think, you know, they just know more and they're not fooling themselves. Yeah. Um, Martha, I wanted to ask you if, if the work that you do, um, do you find that you're doing it out of um, feeling an obligation to tell stories to our country or whether it's for the thrill of the work that you do and, and kind of the excitement or is it a combination of both? I don't. I don't want to say it's thrilling or exciting. It's. I mean, there are some things I've done that are thrilling and exciting, and those are not going into war zones. Is it? Is it? A, a, does your adrenaline get going? Absolutely. But I think I do it because it, it, it's the same reason I always wanted to cover the Pentagon. It is. It is life and death and the world and and the drama of. I mean, you cannot get more more dramatic than being in a war zone and more real and more gritty and more more powerful and i think that's yes there's part of me that that those are the stories i want to tell absolutely mm-hmm. but i would not do that if i didn't think it was important if i didn't think they were important important stories to tell yeah and and to see for myself, I, I, it was interesting for me because the couple of years that I covered the White House, the Bush administration, Iraq was the big story. And it it was such a unique position to live in Washington, D.C., because most foreign correspondents live overseas. To live in D.C., to see President Bush every day struggle with this, to make decisions but to actually go over there and see what was happening. And to me, that was really, really important to do and, mm. and gave me an advantage, I think, of um, others covering the White House. I could come back, and I remember a press conference with President Bush and ask him some question about Iraq, and he, he said, well, well you, I, you've, lived, you've, you've been there. I haven't. Wow. And so it's wow. hard for me to judge in this big, beautiful White House. Yeah. And I thought that was such a moment. But but he would also, on a couple of occasions when I came back, have me come to the Oval Office and talk to him about the trips. Because I think one thing that people forget is that presidents aren't going to be able to be doing what I'm doing, striding up and down the street in Iraq. And he was open to hearing what was happening that his people may not have seen and I may have seen and, and, and others. And I, 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 I appreciated that and um, to talk to him about things that I'd seen on the ground on my many, 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 many trips to Iraq. Yeah, that's, wow, that's fascinating to me. And, and, and you can also challenge them in ways, you know, that, you know, it's, it's somebody is saying, oh, and this is happening there, and you can say, now, come on. I think the last interview I did with President Bush when he was still president, I said, I, you know, during those years before the surge, you were telling people it was it was working over there, it was successful, it wasn't. The American people figured that out. Why were you saying that? Mm. And he said, to keep troop morale up. Mm. And I, I mean, really acknowledging that, in fact, he he wasn't that he knew what, that wasn't being it wasn't so successful then. Yeah. And I said the troops knew the troops knew it wasn't going well. If anyone knew, the troops would know. Right. But I, I, you know, I I 
thankfully I will never have to be president, and that's a tough job that I I don't know how anyone does it. Yeah, well, I wanted to add, you know, you've done a lot of, um, you know, reporting from uh, the White House and and in Washington, and that's completely different from the reporting that you do in places like Iraq. Um, And so from that vantage point, did it did it ever um, give you aspirations to, you know, to to go into politics, become a politician, so that you could be on the policy end of Absolutely things? Absolutely none. Or the opposite. <laughs> Absolutely none. Zero, zero interest. Zero. In right. Yeah. yeah. Um, tell me how you prepared for the uh, vice presidential debate that you moderated with Joe Biden and Paul Ryan. Um, that was significant. And, um, you know, I, I, I just curious, were, were you nervous or do you feel, you know, you were prepared? So uh, you just kind of went in there and, and did the job. I was incredibly nervous leading up to it. And and, and, and I, almost, I almost blocked out time to be nervous. It's uh, after they called me in August, and I thought, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have a couple of weeks to be nervous and terrified about this, and, and how I'm gonna go about it. <laughs> Allow and I'm yourself. Not gonna be right. And so we'll get that out of the way. And then <laughs> I had lots of meetings with people here, and other people and and you know I called uh, Gwen Ifill who had who had done the vice presidential debate I called Charlie Gibson I called uh, all kinds of people who who done it before gathering information I um you know had massive oh my gosh I'm no George Stephanopoulos moments and then <laughs> thought well you know what he's amazing but they want me to do this so right. there's something I'm going to bring to the table and yes. Um, and, and as soon as I sort of found my own confidence in, in what I, I mean, I hadn't covered the campaign. I, I haven't really covered politics for ABC. And so I, it, it, and even in meetings, you know, it was the, the political reporter would come in and you knew that what they wanted out of the debate was not necessarily what I wanted out of the debate. You know, they want, oh, there would be a headline on this or headline. I wanted clarity for the American public. I wanted to see, I, I, I wanted to let them talk and see their differences mm-hmm. and explain things. I, it, it, but I, you know, again, it was football season. It was, <laughs> and I was driving to, to, um, down to my son's college in Ohio every, every weekend. And I would have podcasts on and, and learn whatever I could. But the night of the debate, I, 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 probably somewhere inside me, I was terrified, but I felt confident that I'd done the best I could. I, I have told people it was like studying for the SATs and then, and then taking them in front of 60 million people. But I, I, it was one of those moments I've, I've done the best I can. I have prepared, I am ready. Mm -hmm. Um, and let's go. Right. And I, I remember about halfway through thinking, um, Okay, this is going all right, but I had no idea what the response would be. I, when I got off, and some of our people are saying, "Oh, people think you did a really good job." And I said, oh, that's great. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> well, you did, you well, did, and you, you know, it's funny when you said, um, "You know, I'm not George Stephanopoulos." Well, no, you're Martha Raddatz, and you know I mean, what you I, do I, is I say that with with. Uh, so other people, because everybody has something or somebody or they're there. Oh, that person's better than me. No, we all have gifts. 
Every right. one of us has gifts. That's They're right. not. I am not the best at X, Y, Z, but I'm pretty darn good at you know A, B, C. Yeah. And it, it's. I, I think for anyone listening, and particularly young women, you have to find your gifts, and you cannot. I, I am horrible with numbers. Just horrible. I hate to be gender stereotype here, mm. but I am. Well, I am too. Just, I, I am too. just hate it, and I love these brilliant young men and women who can do it, but. I, I, it doesn't bother me. I just, I know other people are better at that. Mm-hmm. And I know I'm better at other things. And it, it's, it's silly to compare yourself to other people. And so I, I tell a story about, about thinking I'm not George, but partly seriously, but partly in jest because it's, it's, he is fantastic. And, and, you know, me too. We we both bring things, and I think young people need that confidence. Yeah. And you and you and you just have to have it. Yeah, I, I love that. You know, um, we have about five minutes left or so, and I I, I do want to talk about young women in leadership. Um, you know, just quickly, your your thoughts on how we can encourage more young women and and women, older women as well, who really have yet to find their voice or find their purpose or, you know, their belief in themselves. What kinds of things can we do to help encourage that? I mean, mentorship is is definitely one thing. Um, and discussions are great. I think we need to talk about it. But when we talk about our young, and you have a daughter, uh-huh. and I do, what types of things can we say to them to really help them to believe that they are unique and different and have something to offer? Well, I think, first of all, it's just, I, I, I mean, you have to you have to give them some examples you have to find something in them, if you know them and if you're mentoring them, that is outstanding. Help them. I, I think career development for young people is pretty weak. And they go to college and they go to these great schools and they do all that. And then they say, I have no idea what I want to do. Right. I, I also think they have to embrace failure. And they have to know that that decisions they make early on are important and it's great to have direction but if you're going the wrong direction you can you can reboot mm. you can try something else you can keep trying to find something but i think if you if you look at uh, it, there was a, a young woman here who was an intern who in fact she was an intern for me during the vice presidential debate and she had, I mean, she was extraordinary smart anyway, but she had sort of extraordinary social skills. And and people may ignore that or emotional intelligence that she fit in this organization seamlessly. And, and but she also knew, I, I think the, the Japanese call it, in Japan call it reading the air, and that, that she knew sort of intuitively what someone might need or, or if you were bugging that person too much and please quit saying to me, man, can I help you? Is there anything I can do? You know, it, it, she just knew all that. So if, if I tell her that that's really a good thing or I tell other interns who, who may not have those skills about her, it's something to strive for. But I think you have to find what's good in people and what you think is great. And you have to, like me, like, you know, there might be some young woman out there going, Martha Raddatz scared, and she yeah. thinks George Stephanopoulos is, you know, a god. Well, I do, yeah. but, it doesn't, <laughs> but it doesn't 
intimidate me. That's right. That's right. I, I can show, you know, I'll go one-on-one with George on on, on the military or, you know, whatever mm-hmm. that I think I'm good at. Yeah. And again, we all have gifts. That's you right. find them and you share them. Yeah. And point them out to others. I, yeah. I so agree, Martha. I'm so appreciative of your coming in today um, and, and sharing, you know, some, some really true stories about yourself and your life. Thank you so much. Thank you, Susan. That was Martha Raddatz, Senior Foreign Affairs Correspondent at ABC News. I hope you all have a great week. Thanks so much for tuning in.